You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. So big news here at Murder Not Murdering. This is our 10th episode that we have recorded. I can't believe it's number 10. Right? I feel like it's gone by so fast. It really has. I'm just having so much fun. Me too. Um, Last week's episode, we got quite a bit of feedback on. Um, Yeah, the murder castle was fucking insane. (laughs) I feel like so many people just text me and was like, Aaron, Aaron, that I know. was too much. <laughs> Dustin's mom is so cute. She listens to the show too. And she was like, wow, that was something else. <laughs> right. I feel like so many people wrote me and was just like, oh my God, Aaron, that was just, holy so, shit. It was intense. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've never, I've never heard of anything like it. Well, and it's so funny because our dear friend, Tim wrote me and was like, I don't think I've ever heard Autumn say fuck so many times ever. (laughs) You really got me on that one though. (laughs) I did. I did. I hope I do well tonight because I feel like this one is not, it's not as like building an actual castle for murdering, but it's not great either. (laughs) Like in in a good way. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) It gets worse, but not as worse. (laughs) Yeah. I think I said that was the worst and it was, I mean, that was like every time you're like, no, 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 it can't get worse. It got really bad. Yeah. Like really bad. (laughs) Speaking of really bad, I, you have warned me ahead of time that your story is going to be really difficult. Yes. It's, it has a lot of triggers for sure. Do you want to do a little disclaimer? I do. I just want to let everybody know that has a hard time listening to uh, children being killed or rape, then they might want to skip this one. Okay. I try to be as respectful as possible, but parts of the story, just there's no way around mentioning. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to get right on into it. Okay. And it's the story of Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis. Ashley Pond was born on March 1st, 1989. Her mother, Lori Davis, was only 16 years old at the time of her birth. Lori married her high school sweetheart, David Pond, who was Ashley's father. Ashley was described as a loving, easygoing child who had a vivid imagination and could play alone for hours. For being so young when Ashley was born, her parents seemed to provide a happy early childhood for her. At age 10, this all drastically changed for Ashley when her parents divorced. And that can be really hard on a kid. Mm -hmm. Lori and David fought over custody and child support. And it is then the courts ordered a paternity test to be conducted. When the results came back, Ashley was devastated to find out that David Pond was not her biological father. It was revealed that her biological father was a man named Wesley Rodiger. And I'm not entirely sure I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, 
but I listened to it on like Google and had them say the last name. So that's as, that's as close to it as I, I can get. <laughs> she begins to stay with Rodiger on the weekends, getting to know her biological father. Friends and family begin to notice a big difference in her personality. The happy, loving child that they knew was now a very different child. They described her as depressed and confrontational. She began to resist the visitations with her father, and she eventually tells her mom that Rodiger was sexually abusing her. In January of 2001, Wesley Rodiger was indicted on 40 counts of raping and sexually abusing Ashley. Oh my God. Which is the amount of 40. That's insane. In the course of nine months, most of the charges were dropped and he pled no contest to one count and was released on probation. That was the end of her visitations with her biological father. Absolutely. As it should be. Yes. Like no more. You can't know. Ashley's home life was not stable. The cops were called to the home several times for various reasons. One being that Ashley's mom, Lori, was drunk and neglecting her children. In early 2001, Ashley was 12 years old and she began wanting to spend less and less time at home and more and more time at at one of her school friends' homes, Mallory Weaver. Mallory was also a member of the dance team that Ashley had joined. Mallory's dad, Ward Weaver III, and his girlfriend had moved into the neighborhood in 1997. The Weaver's house became the hub for a lot of the girls from the dance team to hang out after school or practice. This included a fellow dance team member and a classmate, Miranda Gaddis. Ashley was invited to go on a two-week summer vacation with Mallory, her dad, and his girlfriend to California. After the trip, Ashley had confided in one of her teachers that Weaver had been molesting her and had even threatened to testify against her in her father's rape trial. The incident was reported to the police, but a police report was never filed by the department and Weaver was never questioned or charged with anything in regards to the rape allegation. After the allegations, she stopped hanging out at his home and his daughter and her friends shunned her. Like how, how sad is that for this little girl? It's really tough. Honestly, it's, it's as a sexual assault survivor, it's, this is really difficult for me to listen to. I'm trying to do my best to hang in here. I know it's not It's a very sad story. Very sad. Despite the unstable home life and the recent accusations of molestation against Weaver, Ashley seemed to be doing a lot better in school again, and she was becoming happier and less argumentative with her mother. On June 9th, 2002, Lori Pond heard her daughter say goodbye around 8.15 a.m. as she left their apartment and raced to the bus stop around the corner. She never arrived at the bus stop that morning. Police immediately suspected, given the history with Ashley's family, that she was a runaway. Ashley's friends and family began to search for her. One of the first people they interviewed of her friends was 13-year-old Miranda Gaddis. Miranda and Ashley came from similar backgrounds and had been good friends for a long time. She was a bright young girl who dreamed of becoming a model. 
She was described as outgoing and funny with a big heart. Miranda's biological father went to prison in 1995 for abuse. Miranda quickly filled the police in on everything that had happened between Weaver and Ashley and the allegations from Ashley about Weaver. They knew then they needed to speak to Ward Weaver. Ward Francis Weaver III was born on April 6, 1963 in California. He had a very troubled past and continued down a dark path into adulthood. He was raised by his mother, Trish. Weaver's father, Ward Francis Weaver Jr., abandoned the family when Weaver was only four years old. A few years later, his mother remarried an abusive alcoholic who moved the family to Portland, Oregon. In 1981, a relative of Weaver's reported that he had raped and abused her. The police did investigate these allegations, but decided not to press charges because Weaver had just enlisted in the armed services and would be leaving Portland shortly. Doesn't make it okay. No. So you're leaving to be in the armed services. So we're not going to hold you responsible for what you did. Hold him accountable for what he did. Yes. Like that's inexcusable. It is. He joined the U.S. Navy Reserve after graduation. That didn't last long as he was dishonorably discharged one short year later on May 7th, 1982 for heavy drinking and dereliction of duty, which basically means he could care less what his supervisors were telling him to do. He would rather be drinking and not doing his job. Weaver met his future wife, Maria Stout, during this time in the Navy a native of the Philippines. The couple moved in with his parents shortly after she became pregnant with their first child. When Maria was five months pregnant, she was physically assaulted by Weaver and it led to her being hospitalized. She refused to press charges, however. Their son, Francis, was born in December, 1982. So he just keeps getting away with things because no one's holding him accountable. It's really frustrating and disgusting. I agreed. It was during this time in 1981 that Weaver's father, Ward Weaver Jr., murdered a young couple whose car had broken down and buried them in his backyard. He was convicted of the crime and sentenced to death in 1984. Ward Weaver III and Maria Stout eventually married in 1984 and moved to Bakersfield, California, where his aggressive behavior did not slow down. On June 15, 1986, Weaver attacked one of his friend's teenage daughters, striking one of the girls with a concrete brick. He served three years in prison for the assault. You're kidding me. Just three years. (laughs) When this guy, this guy. Yeah. When he was released, him and his family relocated to Canby, Oregon, and owned and operated a store. In 1989, the couple had their fourth child, a daughter. They named her Mallory. And now that's Ashley's friend. Mm -hmm. In 1993, Maria Weaver filed a restraining order against Ward Weaver, and their marriage ended in divorce. It was revealed at this time as well that Francis Weaver was not the biological son of Ward Weaver. In July 1995, Weaver beat his girlfriend, Christy Sloan, 
with a cast iron skillet. He went to jail, but she refused to press charges or testify against him. Christy and Ward eventually married in 1996 and their marriage lasted for four years. It's just, it just gets really, this is a really hard one for me, honestly. I know it just gets worse. The cycle of abuse is so terrible. It's just, he just keeps going. Yeah. (laughs) Weaver started an affair with a woman he met at work. They eventually moved in together in Oregon to the home he lived in when Ashley Pond went missing. The police questioned Weaver, but he denied that he had anything to do with Ashley's disappearance and that he hadn't seen or talked to her since her allegations of him raping her. A few months pass and Ashley is still missing. Miranda Gaddis, Ashley's friend from the dance team, also lived in the same apartment complex as Ashley. She was organizing a fundraiser to help fund the search, scheduled for March 23, 2002. On the morning of March 8, 2002, Miranda left for the bus stop and never returned. The house that the Weavers lived in was around the corner from the bus stop that both Ashley and Miranda used to catch the bus to their school. Now that Miranda was also missing, the FBI instated a task force to search for the girls. They released a statement saying, there is a growing belief that the cases are related. And while there's a slight hope that they have run away, there is a growing belief that there was some kind of criminal activity involved. Yeah. Soon after the girls went missing, Weaver and his son, Francis, dug a big hole in his backyard and covered it with cement. Weaver told his son that it was for a hot tub. Mm -hmm. The Portland Tribune got tipped off early on by one of Ashley's relatives that Weaver was a suspect. Weaver told the reporter he was the prime suspect, even though no one had been publicly named. He even gave an interview with KATU TV reporter Anna Song on top of the concrete slab. When Anna asked about the slab, he stated, I'm putting in a jacuzzi. Last time I checked, that wasn't against the law. Wow. Yeah, spicy. He even did an interview with Good Morning America where he said, I have no problem with them looking at me as a suspect. The problems are coming with what they're doing as far as questions that are being asked of my family. They're telling parents of my daughter's friends not to let their daughters spend the night because I'm a prime suspect and their daughter might be next. Well, hell yeah. I mean, (laughs) no way my daughter would be going to Ward Weaver's house. Absolutely not. Ever again, ever again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. On August 13th, 2002, Francis Weaver called 911, reporting that his father, Ward Weaver, had attempted to rape Francis's 19-year-old girlfriend. Oh, my God. Yeah. Francis told the dispatcher that his father had admitted to him that he had been involved in the disappearance of Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis. This was the connection that the FBI was looking for. Dig up that fucking yard. (laughs) It's funny you say that. Weaver was arrested for the attempted sexual assault and a warrant was issued to search his property. 
Pond's stepmother, who always believed that Weaver was involved in both disappearances, had placed a sign next to the concrete slab on his property, which read, dig me up. Wow. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yes. (laughs) Like, what the hell is this concrete slab? Suspicious. Mm -hmm. On August 23rd, 2002, the FBI began to search Ward Weaver's property. That day, they discovered the remains of Miranda Gaddis inside an empty microwave box and a storage shed behind the home. Oh, my God. A few days later, on August 25th, the remains of Ashley Pond were unearthed from beneath the concrete slab in his backyard inside a 55-gallon barrel. In 2002, the governor launched a multi-agency investigation into the handling of the first report of Weaver's abuse of Ashley Pond. Because the police department had poorly filed the paperwork, he was never questioned when her original allegations for him was brought to light. That is just uh, sickening. It makes me so frustrated. Honestly, like... This is making me angry and teary and I am, it's very upsetting. It's a, it's a very, none of this should ever have gotten to the point where it did. Those girls never should have ever been in harm's way. Weaver remained under arrest for the attempted rape of his son's girlfriend until October 2nd, 2002, when he was indicted and charged with six counts of aggravated murder, two counts of abuse of a corpse in the second degree one count of sexual abuse in the first degree, one count of attempted rape in the second degree, one count of attempted aggravated murder, one count of first degree attempted rape, one count of sexual abuse in the first degree, one count of sexual abuse in the second degree, and two counts of sexual abuse in the third degree. That's a lot, a lot. Yeah. I hope he, I hope he was convicted for all of it. In September, 2004, Weaver pleaded guilty to two charges and no contest to the rest. A plea bargain allowed him to avoid the death penalty. He was sentenced to two life sentences without parole. In 2009, Gaddis's younger sister, Mariah, visited Weaver in prison on two separate occasions. She said, I had to know what happened. It was the only way I could put it behind me, she told reporters. During the visits, Weaver admitted to murdering Pond and Gaddis with his bare hands and told Mariah that he had planned to murder her next. Are you kidding me right now? Honestly. Continuing for three generations, on February 17th, 2014, Weaver's son, Francis, was arrested and charged with murder. He and three others had allegedly robbed and killed a drug dealer in Canby, Oregon, the day prior. Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis were two innocent young girls who met a very tragic fate. Ashley's allegations should have been taken seriously, and this man should never have been allowed near children again. Absolutely. It's just... It's a very hard one and it made me very teary too. And I know how hard it is for you to talk about this because of all of your experience, Mm -hmm. but I 
I felt like just because it's hard for us to talk about doesn't mean it doesn't need to be heard. And that these girls tragic cycle with this horrible man, all these warning signs, like people need to know. Yeah. My sources were unsolved mysteries, Wikipedia, murderpedia, a podcast called going West, a podcast called true crime cat lawyer, which was actually really cute. True crime cat lawyer. That sounds like you made that up. <laughs> I know it's, it sounds like it would be my podcast for real though. Um, it, the Oregonian and an article by Charles Montaldo. Well, that was terrible. I'm sorry. I wasn't giving a lot of feedback on that one, but it just, it, it was very difficult for me to, to hear. I know. I, and I totally understand if people skip through that one, it's, sure. it's very uh, triggering and very sad. Yeah, it is. So we will be back in a few minutes after we hear from our sponsor and I will be telling the story of John George Haig. So we'll be back in just a minute. All right. So welcome back. Um, tonight I am going to be doing, or today, whenever you're listening, whatever time of day it is, hopefully it's um, bright and early on a Saturday morning. That's right. So good morning and welcome <laughs> back because <laughs> I am doing an old timey crime as I usually do. However, it's a little more new timey for me. It takes place in the forties. So it's a little bit different in that way, but it's still an old timey crime. So I'm going to be doing the story of John George Haig, the acid bath murderer. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah. And this is, this is, a, a again, a little bit more of a well-known one, but I did a shit ton of research. So hopefully I will give you new facts that you've never heard before. And if you haven't, then buckle up. <laughs> so John George Haig was born July 24th, 1909 in England and grew up in West Yorkshire. His parents, Alfred and Emily, belonged to an ultra-conservative and anti-modern religion called the Plymouth Brethren. They believed that you needed to live in a very secluded and severely strict lifestyle. Haig's father built a 10-foot fence around the garden to block out the entire outside world. Despite this, Haig became an excellent piano player, but he did later claim that during his childhood, he suffered from reoccurring religious nightmares. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, they were, I mean, very, very strict, lived very modestly. And they were, I mean, he went through a lot of abuse with his father regarding religion. You know, if, when I think he said when he was eight years old, something had happened and his dad told him it's because you're a sinner. That's why these, why you have a scar on your forehead. You know, I mean, like, just awful. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So he did win a scholarship to the queen, queen Elizabeth grammar school in Wakefield. And then he won an additional scholarship to the Wakefield cathedral where he became a choir boy after school. He was an apprentice to a firm of motor engineers, but he left that job and took other jobs in insurance and advertising at age 21. He was fired for being suspected of stealing from the cash box. So this is kind of the beginning of his 
kind of fraud. And he definitely was not a very trustworthy person. On July 6th, 1934, Haig married Betty Hammer, a lively woman described in some accounts as a good time girl. The marriage was over shortly after it began. The same year Haig went to jail for fraud. Betty gave birth to a girl while he was in prison and gave the baby up for adoption and left Haig for good. Mm -hmm. Upon his release, he was jailed again, this time for 15 months for a fraud involving buying cars on higher purchase, which is installment plans. So he would take a car from an installment plan and then he would end up trying to sell it or scam to get money out of it. Oh, okay. Because I was like, what's a higher purchase? Yeah, I was wondering that too. Yeah. This time when he was freed, he went straight. He was starting a dry cleaning business that became very successful until his business partner was killed in a motorcycle accident. He moved to London and became a chauffeur to William McSwan, a wealthy owner of an amusement park. Haig and McSwan became friends. Haig wanted to start a business of his own, so he did as a fake lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like me. I could be a cat lawyer. And he earned himself four years in jail for fraud. Oh, never mind. I'm going to scratch that dream then. (laughs) He was released just after the start of the Second World War, then jailed again for theft. While in prison, he came up with the perfect murder and fraud. He thought he would get away with it by dissolving the bodies in sulfuric acid. No bodies, no crime. He experimented on mice and found that it only took 30 minutes for the bodies to disappear. The mice bodies. He was freed from one term and got a job as an accountant with an engineering firm. Apparently, background checks weren't a thing because <laughs> I don't know that he's the best accountant or even <laughs> a, a real one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is a, he's a great lawyer, though. Um, <laughs> anyway. So uh, soon after, by chance, he ran into William McSwan at the Goat Pub in Kensington. McSwan introduced Haig to his parents, Donald and Amy, who mentioned that they invested in real estate. On September 6, 1944, William McSwan disappeared. Haig later admitted to hitting him over the head and luring him to a basement at 79 Gloucester Road in London. He then put McSwan's body into a 40-gallon drum and filled it with sulfuric acid. It took two days for the body to turn to sludge. He then poured it into a manhole, and he told McSwan's parents that their son had fled to Scotland to avoid being called up for military service. Oh, that's a lot to digest there. Yeah, sure is. <laughs> oh my God. Not only did he dissolve a human body in a barrel. And then he, he dumped it down a manhole. Yeah. And then he told the, the parents that he was evade, evading doing his service. Mm-hmm. So Haig then took over McSwan's house. And when Donald and Amy became curious why William hadn't returned as the war was coming to an end, on July 2nd, 1945, Haig lured the parents to Gloucester Road and murdered them. He disposed of the bodies the same way he did their son. Wow. Yeah. Even though Haig had been caught many, many times for fraud, 
By now, he had actually become a really excellent forger, and he stole the McSwan's pension checks and sold their properties, stealing about 8,000 pounds, which is somewhere around $250,000 with inflation nowadays. Wow, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. He then moved into the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington. By the summer of 1947, Haig had gambled away a lot of the money, and it was starting to become really tight. So he set out to find another victim. He met a well-to-do couple, Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife, Rose. He saw that they were selling a house and expressed an interest in buying it. They realized he didn't really have the funds for this purchase, but by that point, they had all become friends. They were impressed by his nice suits, and they all enjoyed going to lavish parties together. Haig saw weaknesses in their marriage and exploited this to separate them. He was also very helpful with Rose and he would walk their dog every day. Dr. Henderson started to become jealous of Rose's relationship with Haig. On February 12th, 1948, he drove Dr. Henderson to Crawley in West Sussex to his new small workshop he was renting. He said he wanted to show him a new invention, but when they arrived, Haig shot him in the head with a revolver that he stole from the Henderson's house. And he put Dr. Henderson into the drum of acid, then lured Rose Henderson to the workshop, claiming Dr. Henderson had fallen ill, and he shot her and put her into another oil drum. After After disposing of the Henderson's bodies in oil drums, he forged a letter from them selling all of their possessions except their dog, which he kept. Apparently, he really liked the dog. I'm not even kidding. That's really kind of fucked up. I know. I killed your parents, but I'm keeping you. For real. He made 8,000 pounds from them. So about the same amount. So he got another $250,000 off of them and a dog. That's so, so, so shitty. (laughs) The last victim was Olive Durand Deacon, aged 69. She was a widow and fellow resident of the Onslow Court Hotel. A lot of the people that lived as residents in that particular hotel were elderly women or just older, well-to-do women. So she mentioned to Haig, who now claimed to be an engineer, that she had a great idea for artificial nails. On February 18th, 1949, he lured her into the Crawley workshop to show her prototypes he had been working on. He shot her in the back of the head and stripped her of her valuables, including a Persian lamb coat, and then put her in an acid bath. Then he went back to the hotel and ate a three-course meal with his stolen dog. What? Yep. How could you eat after that? I guess that was... He's a psychopath. (laughs) So (laughs) Mrs. Duran Deacon's lack of presence in the dining room was noticed. Her friend Constance Lane became very anxious. Haig noticed that she was getting really concerned. And so he offered to take her to the police station to report Mrs. Duran Deacon missing. The detectives suspected Haig from the very beginning. 
even though he claimed that Mrs. Duran Deacon never showed up to their business meeting at his workshop. Detectives soon discovered Haig's record of fraud and theft, and they immediately searched the workshop, finding a receipt for dry cleaning for a Persian lamb coat and documents of the McSwans and the Hendersons. Even though much of the bodies were dissolved, they did find empty containers of sulfuric acid, oil drums, a gas mask, rubber apron, rubber gloves, and they, they found the drum that was containing Mrs. Duran Deacon. Inside, they found 28 pounds of human fat, a hairpin, upper and lower dentures that were used to, to get a positive identification from her dentist, and three gallstones. They also found a handle of a red handbag and a lipstick container. They found 18 bone fragments and part of a left foot that was not quite eroded yet. Take it in on them. I'm sitting here with my jaw like on the floor. The first thing that they found when they were going through it was a gallstone. And when they saw that, they were like, there's definitely a person in here. So then they went through the process of getting, going through all of that, but they ended up getting a positive identification for her from the dentures, which is pretty impressive. At least they got yeah. Also at that point, Haig had begun to sell off her jewelry and her assets. When he was arrested, he said, I will tell you about it. Mrs. Duran Deacon no longer exists. She has disappeared completely and no trace can ever be found again. I have destroyed her with acid. You will find the sludge, which remains on Leopold Road. Every trace of her is gone. Then, with a whole bunch of arrogance, he says, how can you prove there's a murder without a body? Oh, my God, no. He had convinced himself years ago in prison that if there was no body, there can be no conviction. He admitted to all the murders, almost bragging to Inspector Webb. He then asked the inspector, what are the chances of being released from Broadmoor? Which is what at the time was an insane asylum for criminals. By doing that, he completely showed all his cards and that he was going to plead insanity. He also told inspectors that he drank the blood of his victims before putting them oh. in the acid. No. <laughs> and the press called him a vampire. He talked about his religious dreams where he drank blood. And he said that he couldn't have control over his own impulses. There's a lot of theories that he never drank blood. And this was just part of him trying to plead insanity. He was doing a really good job. Yeah. And then he told, he told the press and the press actually got one of the newspapers was sued because they were putting out false information by calling him the vampire. So he never showed any remorse at all. He also admitted the three more murders, stating that he killed them just to drink their blood. Physicians did not believe his story of vampirism, and it was clear that he was motivated by money and living a lavish lifestyle. No one believed the drink blood drinking at all. <laughs> Sorry, bro. <laughs> Sorry. Fake vampire. Yeah. You, fake you sparkling out there. I know. I was just about to say, <laughs> what are you, Twilight? For real. 
Um, on July 18th, 1949, 4,000 people crowded into the small town of Luz, hoping to get a seat at the courtroom. Mr. Justice Humphreys presided. Haig didn't have the money to pay for a defense. So the News of the World newspaper paid for his lawyers if he would provide them with an exclusive, which he did. He pleaded not guilty due to insanity. The prosecution rested its case, showing the murders were premeditated for monetary gain. It took a jury only minutes to convict him of murder and fraud. He was sentenced to death by hanging. He asked if he could get a trial run of the hanging to make sure that everything went smoothly. What? Yeah. His request was denied. (laughs) I was about to say, doesn't that just defeat the purpose? You don't have a trial run. Yeah. He was led to the gallows and executed on August 10th, 1949. There was a body and a grave for John George Haig, which is so much more than he ever gave his victims. This is crazy. Are you ready for this? Yes. He agreed to model for a death mask being made by the famous Madame Tussauds Waxworks. He donated his own clothes with the stipulations that Madame Tussauds would keep them pristine and that his trousers would always be pressed, cuffs showing, and his hair parted. I will include a picture of his wax figure on the Instagram page because it's really strange. And he was on a display with a bunch of other murderers. You know, a death mask is an actual casting of the face. So it is a weird, bizarre tidbit in this one. Yeah. My sources were from the show Murder Maps, murderpedia.org, and a whole bunch more articles that, I mean, I read so much, but I just didn't jot all of them down. So I'm so sorry that I did not do that, but I just did so much research trying to get this one down. That, that was fascinating. It's an interesting one. And the fact that he had himself so convinced that this was the way he was going to get away with it, that if there's just, if there's no body, they can't prove that there was a murder and I can't be convicted. Right. Well, there's a Taylor Swift song. That's no body, no crime. (laughs) And that's like, reminds me of that. The truth of the matter is, is that they didn't even need bodies to convict him. They had enough evidence without that. Yes. Because they didn't have the Hendersons. They didn't have McSwan, all of the McSwans, sorry, whole fam. Um, So they they didn't have any of those bodies. The only one that they had any evidence of was Mrs. Durand Deacon. So sorry, John, George, that's just not how this played out. It's just... (laughs) And we had a connection on this one again. We did with the oil drum. With the oil drum. Yes. Um, That was an interesting one. I really, I really liked it in a way that it's a little bit more modern. So they did have more forensics and that was a lot nicer to have that. Plus there's actual his confession, you can read his confession. So it's nice to be able to see 
just to have more information out there. Right. Because it is hard sometimes with the old timey crimes, because I will have to do so much reading and research just to find something that is a consistent thread throughout. Right. And I don't know if everybody knows how much work it is to do these old timey crimes like you do. Yeah. It's a lot of research, a lot lot of of reading. I spend a lot of time reading and then I just desperately try to see if I can find a show that I can put on, you know, while I'm doing my research. So that's the story of the acid bath murderer. He, it is a more famous one, especially because there was a time during wartime, during World War II, where there were murderers. And I may do some other ones from that time period because there were murderers that were murdering, but because London was being bombed and because there were so many things going on, it was really easy to pass off these bodies as, you know, just a casualty of war. There was a lot of opportunistic killings during that time. I think I'm going to probably touch on it again. Yeah, that was definitely... That, I mean, it was no murder castle. I don't know how we're ever going to top that one. <laughs> I don't think we can top the murder castle. But that I really, no. that was really interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, I hope people are liking that I do focus on these older ones. If you have suggestions, please feel free to email us. It's info at murdernotmurdering.com. Or you can DM us on Instagram and we reply pretty quickly. So we'll get back to you right away on that. But we love suggestions and feedback. Yes. (laughs) Also, if you are enjoying the show, make sure you follow us on uh, Apple Podcasts and please give us a rating so we can have some nice feedback as well. Yes, and subscribe so that you always know when our shows are coming out on Saturdays. And happy 10th episode. I know, I'm so proud of us. (laughs) I can't believe it. I feel like, I hope, like, I think we'll do a big one for the 20th episode, but this is a little milestone in our podcast. Yes. And I know there has been a lot of uh, requests for us to do super famous murders, Mm -hmm. um, like Ted Bundy. And we have something in mind for that. So just stay tuned. It will be in the works. Yes. Um, But we are trying to focus on a ones that you may not have heard of or find details of ones that you haven't found that same information. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to keep it, keep it fresh, keep it spicy. Yes. That's what we're attempting to do. Yes. We're fresh and spicy on our own. So (laughs) exactly. Um, and not murderers. No, we promise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for listening this week. We'll be back next Saturday with a new episode And yeah, that's it. Bye. Bye.